so many different places from <coughs> things we will not provide. Um, so we, it, it is a challenge to us to, to continually look for the war, look to the Lord for those things. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me a little bit. I'm suffering from a summer cold. It came on me in the last day or two, so uh, uh, my voice is a little bit off. And uh, and uh, please don't be insulted, but I'm probably not going to shake hands or, or hug anybody 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 after we afterwards, afterwards because I don't want you to get violently ill. Um, so. Uh, I do want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, because that's where we're going to be spending our time talking about good church, bad church. And um, we've gotten to this point where, where Paul has, has, has spent the entire book of Ephesians reminding people again who they are, who they are, who they are. This is who you are. Not really talking about the, the different things that they do, but spending all of his time talking about who they are. And then at this point in, in, the book, in Ephesians 4, he jumps into the part that, that, that some of us have been waiting for. He says, so I tell you this. And insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Now, some of you are thinking, like, finally we're getting into it. Now we're going to stick it to all of the people who do all the things that I don't like to do. You know, and, uh, and, and for some of us, this is a Christianity that is very familiar to us. This is what we grew up with. Simon, sit up. Um, so we, uh, you know, uh, where this, this is what they've looked forward to the entire time. They're like, ha, now we're going to start talking about all of the bad people out there as opposed to the good people that are in here. I grew up with this kind of Christianity to a certain degree, where it was, it was about don't smoke, drink, or chew, and don't hang out with girls who do. You know, we kind of, some of us are familiar with that old thing. Uh, chew tobacco. Yeah, don't. That was, you know, but it was defined by what we did and we didn't do. And the bad people out there did things like, like drink alcohol and go to secular movies and, and listen to music with drums. And those of us who are on the inside did good things, right? We read the Bible and we listened to the right music that was coming out of the right record labels in Nashville, right? We bought the right collection of books from the right things. We did the right things with school. And, and, and so this is very reinforcing for us. This is very encouraging that like, ha ha, I like to have it that, that, um, that, 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 that when we've made the list of sins, we don't keep the list of sins. Therefore, we're separate, separate from all of these evil people who do the sins. But I, I want us to push back from that a little bit because I don't think most of you live there. But I want us to push back from that a little bit because the whole context of this passage of understanding that we're supposed to that, that we are supposed to live different lives than the, than the average person of the Lord is in the context of this that we talked about last week. That as a prisoner from the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy, worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. And that idea was something that, that in the midst of all of the holiness that I thought was really good and was really good in the church that I grew up with, we missed this humility and gentleness part. We miss this part where, where when people are doing the wrong things, we don't say, ha-ha, good for you, you know, I feel so much better than you now. We, we miss the part where, where with humility we recognize that we've been given a great gift that, that, and, and that we approach people who behave differently than we do with, with gentleness. And I want to be clear because there's a, something that gets lost in our, in, our, in our culture, in our society, that humility and confidence are not opposites. 
Humility and confidence go hand in hand with, with one another. And that, and that the people who are most humble have the, mo the deepest understanding of who they are. They can see themselves clearly and they can see the reality that God has given us as we talked about last week that, that we have been, oh, I picked the wrong one. Sorry, wrong slide. Um, but that we have been adopted, that we have been remade, that we have been reconciled, and that we have been empowered. Understanding all of that, understanding all of that as a gift enables us to live differently, enables us to live gently and humbly. And having that confidence in who we are as made by God enables us to live with humility and gentleness. That is, that is what we've been called to. So today we're, we're talking about putting things on. And we're putting on this new self that, that, that God is talking about and, and that Paul is talking about in the beginning of Ephesians. And, he, and he, he continues to talk about it in this way. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge every kind of impurity, and they are, fully, uh, and they are full of greed. It's interesting. So Paul here diagnoses the problem that people have. Now, in the kind of fundamentalist Thing that I grew up with, we diagnosed the problems that people were evil and they wanted bad things, therefore they did bad things. This is an entirely different understanding of that. What Paul says here is that, is that when he diagnoses the problem, he says that there's a fundamental core misunderstanding of who we are and why we're here. And when we misunderstand who we are and why we're here, we live lives that are dictated to us by our desires. That rather, than, that, 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 that rather than a deliberate choosing of evil as opposed to the things of God, there's an, a foundational misunderstanding that, that, that people feel alone, that people feel desperate, that few, people feel like they do not have enough, that they are not going to be taken care of. And in the midst of feeling that way, people then choose things that, that will bring them satisfaction. Now, the things that they choose to bring them satisfaction don't last, unfortunately. That's part of the darkness and the misunderstanding. But when we understand the problem as fundamentally not a deliberate choosing of evil, but a, but a bad solution to a misunderstanding of a problem, then that changes our our relation to people who are choosing incorrect things and it changes our relationship to ourselves when we're choosing incorrect things so people misunderstanding who they are and why they're here find themselves living fundamentally in immaturity and their lives are dictated to them by their desires if you want to understand what it looks like to live a life that is dictated by your desires i challenge you if you have not done this to walk through a grocery store with a small child right what happens, parents, people who have done this, what happens when you walk through a grocery store with a small child? They ask for everything. They want everything. Everything that is immediately in front of them, they want. And they want that now. And if you don't give them that thing right now, their entire world breaks down. And what's interesting is as you move down the aisle, the very next thing distracts them from the thing that they wanted so fundamentally deeply a moment ago, and now they want a new thing, right? It's a fundamental immaturity. 
that, 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 that if you walk through a grocery store with a toddler, they see whether it be crackers, whether it be, whether it be a banana, whether it be chocolates, whether, everything is going to provide them satisfaction in that moment. And if I don't get this now, then I'm going to throw a tantrum because my life is falling apart, right? That's the way that immature children work as a grocery store, at a grocery store. And we can understand that as adults. We've all seen it. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna submit to you that what Paul is talking about and what many of us are privy to and what all of us are privy to if we're, not watching our, if we're not watching ourselves is that all of us can live our lives that way as a small child in a grocery store thinking that whatever is in front of us right now is gonna provide us with deep satisfaction. That, that whatever is in front of us, be it money, be it affirmation, be it sex and sexuality, be it, be it food, be it, be it consumer goods, that we see those things in front of us and our body and our heart says, I want that and that's going to make me whole. Now maturity reaches in and says, no, that's not going to make you happy. You know, the, 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 the Count Chocula isn't going to, it might taste good, really, really good right now, but that thing is not ultimately going to give you the joy and, law, and, and long-term satisfaction that you're looking for. But we need to develop that maturity to, get, to spread that maturity from the Count Chocula to all of the things in our lives, understanding that those are the things that are going to give us joy. Maturity says that I'm going to limit my choices in the grocery store of life because I have an understanding of what is healthy and what is unhealthy. I have an understanding of what is going to bring me joy and what is not going to bring me joy. I have an understanding of what is good for me and not good for me. So I'm not going to throw a tantrum when I don't get what I want. And how many people do we know whose lives are, if we're honest, and how many times have we been like this, where we've just lived one tantrum to another because we didn't get what we wanted? It's a fundamental misunderstanding of who we are and why we're here. It's an immaturity. And Paul is telling us, don't live like this anymore, okay? We've been given new life. So our job and our calling in light of who we are is to live with maturity. It is not, however, the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regards to the former way of your life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in, the true, in true righteousness and holiness. Now, this is very interesting because Paul is clearly talking about the way you used to live. So when, we, so when he's, he's saying, when you're approaching these Gentiles who are fundamentally darkened in the understanding of their hearts and their minds, that's you a couple of minutes ago. Let's not get on our high horses here. This is how we live with humility, by remembering who we used to be. But in the midst of this, we've learned a new way to live. And, and so he's reminding us that, that, that that's the way that we used to live and, that, and that's the way that we could return to if we're not careful. But we're taught to put off deceitful desires. And I find this so fascinating, this idea of deceitful desires, because deceitful desires are longings for things that will not bring us joy, longings for things that will leave us unsatisfied and destroyed. Now, what's interesting about these deceitful desires is that most of the time our desires are for things that are good. There's nothing wrong with a desire for food. There's nothing wrong with a desire for sex. There's nothing wrong with a desire for consumer goods. But when we remove that from its context, and when we allow that to take over, then all of a sudden these things are destroyed. Let's 
when let just staying in this concept of deceitful desires, what is, and this is a non-rhetorical question, okay? So what is food supposed to do? Yeah, give us energy, make our bodies work, right? That's what food is supposed to do, all right? And, and food, when taken to its, its fullest and clearest extent, can do other things in addition to just providing us with energy. It can provide community, that there's a community made when we, when we bring food for to get together, when we share food, when we, when we eat with other people. There's something good and there's something beautiful about that. Would it be weird or not weird for me to make a turkey dinner one day? So let's imagine that I've made a turkey I've made all of the, the, all of the things along, that go along with it. I've made a turkey, I've made some mashed potatoes, I've made um, Brussels sprouts with the bacon inside them, or not inside them, but, but, but yeah, and, I, and I've done all of those things, and I make this beautiful meal, and I, and, and I sit down at the table, and I eat all of it by myself. Is that weird? Yeah, why is that weird? It's a lot of food. And it's something that is obviously designed for a community, but I'm taking it all in myself. There's a desire that is good, and if placed in its proper context, is gonna lead me the right way, but it can get twisted and turned into something that was so far from what it was intended to be. That food, something that is good, that brings us energy, right, makes our bodies work, enables us to do what God has called us to do, all of a sudden that desire gets perverted and twisted into something that it was never intended to be and, and ends up bringing more disappointment and more destruction and ultimately makes our body, this, this energy that is good for our bodies ends up being turned against our bodies and can harm it, right? We have longing for th- longings for things that will not bring a, bring a that, that if used outside of the context will, context, will not bring us joy, but leave us unsatisfied and destroyed. We do this with food. We can do it with sex and sexuality as well. What is it for? Procreation, right? It's for intimacy, for binding people together. But all of a sudden, when you take it out of its context, it becomes something that is used to, to reaffirm uh, individual people, to, 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 to prop up ideas of ego, to use people for our own uh, building up a, 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 and connection, uh, the, the, to bind people to ga- uh, together. And it's supposed to bind people to ga- together in ways that they were already intertwined. But instead, we use this for emotional connection and validation. It's, it becomes a good thing that's moved into an unhealthy direction. There's nothing wrong with wanting to buy things in and of itself. What happens is when we, where it gets wrong is when that desire to buy a thing that we need makes us think that that will make us a different person, right? That's where the desire becomes deceitful. It's lying to you. It's saying, well, if I buy this car... Then, then I will be the kind of person that owns this car and that will make me feel better about myself. That's not true. And ultimately, when we say it out loud, we all know it, right? But yet at the same time, there's something that disconnects us from ourselves. And I think for those of us who are Christians, if we want to put off our old self, and this is a continual task of putting off our old self, stepping away from our deceitful desires, I think my rule of thumb generally is are you happy to share this experience that you've had with others? So if I'm having a really positive food experience that is healthy, I will go to other people and say, I had this amazing hamburger or I had this amazing thing, you should go there too. Or I'm going to invite other people to go with me and I will share this experience with other people. If I'm doing something unhealthy, like 
eating seven donuts at a time, I'm doing that in my car by myself, right? And I'm not going home to Teddy and being like, you know what I did today? I ate seven donuts in the car by myself, right? Like that. The unhealthy behavior is not something that I'm excited about sharing, right? Same thing with our sexuality. Are you excited about sharing this experience that you had? Same thing with our buying things. Uh, are you excited to say, I got such a great deal on this thing that I need, you should go and buy it too? Or are you, bu- or are you hoarding something because it's going to, you think it's going to satisfy you in some way? Desires in their proper context bring joy, and in, and in their proper context are fit for sharing, but when they're not in their proper context, they bring shame and push us further from who we are and who we are created to be. So we're not supposed to live that way. We're supposed to have a deep understanding of, of, of who we are, who God is, and what things are. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Let, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. So in light of this, in light of living differently, not only do we have different relationships with our desires, we also have different relationships with our own words. We tell the truth, and we care about the truth, and we do the diligence and work to make sure that we are speaking truth, and we don't put up with people speaking lies, and we do the diligence to make sure that we're not further spreading misinformation. We do the work to make sure that we are telling the truth. We care about it. This is... I get really frustrated when people say that we're living in a post-truth era. One, because I don't know what that means. But two, it's the contrary of what we've been called to as Christians. Put off falsehood. If something is true, say that it's true, even if we don't like it. Say it's true. If it's false, say it's false. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. But let's not be people who tolerate lies right? There's so many lies and misinformation causing fear in this world, and it's our responsibility as followers of Jesus to put off falsehood and speak truth to our neighbor. So we let our words be true. We deal with anger and frustration well. It says, speak truthfully in our anger, do not sin. Let, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. In your anger, do not sin. That's quoting something in Psalms. Uh, I find it interesting because Because this allows the open door. Sometimes uh, when I was younger, I thought that all anger was automatically sinful, that anger is automatically sinful. But that's not true. There are times when we look at the world in which we live and the only righteous response is anger. There have been close to 30 murders in the city of Edmonton this year. The only righteous response to that is anger. We all know people who have been the victims of, of, of emotional, spiritual, physical, and sexual abuse. The only righteous response to that is anger. The only righteous response to a world filled of oppression and inequality and, and, and more and more stealing and oppression is, is anger. We should be angry at that. I should be angry and you should be angry. And when we see people being damaged for the convenience of others, that should make us angry. But in our anger, do not sin. What does our anger produce in us? Does it just produce me getting testy and yelling at my children? Then that's my anger leading me to sin. 
But if my anger leads me to do something better, leads me to, to, to intervene in, in the lives of others, if it, if it causes me to go and, and, and write something, to write another sermon, to, to, to bring this information that changes lives to other people, if it causes you to, to, to in your anger, go and, you know, like, weed the garden better, I don't know, but, but, but there, are, there are healthy outputs for our anger. And I want, it, I, don't, I want us to, in some ways, I want us to turn the volume on our anger up. I want us to be more angry because we have been numbed to a world that is so full of injustice and we get angry at things that we shouldn't be angry about and we let things that, 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 that we should be furious about slide. I want us to turn up our anger a little bit, but I want us in our anger not to sin. The clearest, uh, clearest example I've had of this this week is I really love uh, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History. And... Uh, this week, he, w- he did an episode about, uh, about golf courses and how golf courses in the city of Los Angeles are private golf courses, and they don't accept, uh, and, and, they, and they're very expensive to be a part of, but also golf courses are giant places that can't be used as parks. You know, they're private, so you can't just go have a picnic in this beautiful place. And, and what frustrated him is that in the city of Los Angeles, uh, these private 250-acre uh, parks don't pay property taxes, even though they're private and they have big fences to keep everybody out. And he was furious about this. You know, he was absolutely, like, you could tell in the tone of Malcolm Gladwell's voice that, he, that, that, that he's a person who likes to run, and he's like, I want to run on that golf course, but you got a giant fence keeping me out. And he was so he was angry, and he was justifiably angry. Uh, one, one, the Brentwood Golf Course, which should be paying $90 million in taxes based on how big the property is in the city of Los Angeles, instead pays $200,000 in taxes. And in a city with crumbling public schools, that's a big problem. But anyway, so he was furious. But in his being furious, what did he do? He wrote something. He made something. He did something creative. He, did, he took that energy that had been given by his anger and he turned it into something that was going to make a difference to make this problem known to more people. The alternative is to allow that anger to, to just make you, I don't know, go burn a golf course down or, or to go stab someone outside a, outside a country club or to go smash up somebody's car outside a... Those are all unhelpful things. They're not going to make a difference. But in our anger, do not sin. Be angry. There's times when we ought to be. But do not sin in the midst of that. Allow our anger to, 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 to turn our energy towards creativity and making a difference in the world. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I don't mean, think that this means, in, and I've heard people use it this way, I don't think that this means in marriage relationships you should not uh, you, should, you should fight until your fight is done and then not go to bed beforehand. I think that, one, I don't think that that's appropriate given the context. Two, I just think it's dumb. I think that no healthy conversation happens after, like, midnight. So, like, even if you're still mad, like, go to bed and then wake up in the morning and be like, are we still mad about this? Because half the time you're going to be like, no, nah, I'm not mad about that anymore. Um, now I'm just hungry. And... Um, but what this is talking about is not allowing bitterness to take root in our hearts. If you allow weeds to take root in your lawn, what do they do? Ultimately, they take over. And they push all of the grass out. 
right? If you, if you allow it to stay there, then the roots get so deep, you can never get rid of it, and it just grows and grows and grows, and eventually you will have no grass and you will have all weeds. But if you keep your grass healthy, your grass will starve out the weeds. Your, gra- your healthy grass, in theory, should push the weeds out. But we need to take the responsibility to push out weeds. Use our brains and our hearts to take every thought captive. When we, when we find ourselves and, and, and this happened to me when I was driving here this morning. When I find myself getting angry about something that happened four, five years ago with someone that I have no dealings with anymore, then I need to take responsibility for my thoughts and say, like, I don't live there anymore. Why am I getting angry about this in a Sunday morning in, in June 2017 over something that happened in, in, in August of 2011, Right? Like, that's foolishness on my part. So I need to take every thought captive and, 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 and not allow the devil a foothold by living in that anger over and over and over again. He continues, and everybody has to work doing something useful with their own hands that they may, may have something to share with those in need. It's interesting. I wonder, I always think, like, how many thieves, and this was part on, on The Simpsons because there was Do Not Steal, but I often wonder, like, how many thieves were sitting in the church at Thessalonica being like, or, or in Ephesus being like, oh, shoot. <laughs> like, I was really good at stealing. Like, I'm, so, like, I'm working really hard at stealing all my life, and now I got to go do something else. No, do something useful. The, do something that gives back. Part of what, we, what we're, we've been called to do as, as followers of Jesus is do something that gives back and makes life better for other people. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now we're going to get more into five, but this is the basic difference. That because we know Christ, because we know what Christ has done for us, we live our lives sacrificially. We live our lives lovingly. We live our lives generously because we have been given so much by someone who has given to us. So that changes the tone of our words. It changes the choices of our words. It changes the choices of our actions and the way that we interact with our own desires. Because God has been so good to us, it changes everything. So we see... The, the, the parallels that we've been given throughout this passage, that we can, that what we used to be and what people still do is live in misunderstanding, not understanding who they are and why we're here. Living lives where they think that my job is to gather as much pleasure as I possibly can because I'm not going to live that long. And a misunderstanding of what we heard, where our, our desires get disordered, where we start to, 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 to desire things and, and to desire a quantity of things and in a measure that is ultimately going to destroy us. And because the things that we've expected to bring us joy don't, then we live in anger and we live in fear because, because the world isn't working the way that we thought it was supposed to be. But the challenge for us as followers of Jesus is to move to the other side of this short And as Christ has called us to live an understanding of who we are and why we're here, that we've been created in the image of God to live in harmony with him and in harmony with ourselves, harmony with each other and harmony with the planet. And that, and that, and that he has provided for us in every way to get there. So we start to live lives of maturity where we understand where our, that our desires are good in their context, that there are things that are life-giving in their context, but we don't allow our choices to be dictated to us like children walking through a grocery store. 
we find ourselves living with maturity. And, and in light of that maturity, we have a heart of forgiveness and compassion for those who don't understand it the way that we do. So we don't, when the world doesn't go the way that we want it to go, we don't find ourselves getting angry and saying like, how dare the world not be what we want it to be? We find our hearts going, reaching out in compassion that like, okay, I'm sorry that you don't understand the world in this way. I, I, where we, we, we have grace for people who do not yet know the truth. And we work hard, and we do the slow, hard, patient, diligent work of walking side by side people who don't understand things. That's the, who, who don't understand the truth yet. That's a challenge of, follower, of being a follower of Jesus. That's the difference between good church and bad church. Because let's be honest about this. Contemporary church in North America, which side of, this, of, these, which of these columns is contemporary church identified with? I see churches that are just trying to manipulate the politics of, of, of the society rather than the hearts of the society. I see churches that are preaching from the pulpit that God exists to give you what you want, that your desires are perfectly in order and God is just going to line those things up. I see churches that are constantly living in anger and fear and trying to bring more anger and fear out of, the peop out of their people. That is not what we've been called to. So we have a choice. We do have a choice. And we're going to pick the harder road. It's way easier to live lives of misunderstanding and disorder and desires and anger and fear. But we're going to take up the challenge to be a good church, to live compassionate.